We now return to our interview with Matt Ho on the costs of war and the misperceptions generated by our government and media. The Taliban did not bring the burqa, the head-to-toe covering that women are forced to wear. Some women do choose to wear it, but I think probably most are forced to wear. If they had a choice, they probably wouldn't wear it, right? But the Taliban did not bring the burqa to Kabul. The warlords that the United States supported during the war against the Soviet Union and then who then put in power after the Taliban was deposed by the United States, they're the ones who brought the burqa to Kabul. They're also the ones who shelled and killed tens and tens of thousands of people in Kabul. But this idea that somehow these last 20 years has been an era of progress for women is just completely undone by any knowledge of what Afghan society is actually like. There have been pockets, there have been, if you go to certain neighborhoods in some cities in Afghanistan, women have much more rights, much more access to education, health care, the ability to travel, etc., than they did under the Taliban. But those areas are very limited, and it's confined to maybe the top two or three wealthiest echelons of Afghan society. The reality is for most Afghan women, although maybe the brutality and the oppression that they must live with is not as severe or medieval or theatrical, okay, as what they experience on the Taliban, they are still living in an oppressive society, a subjugative culture, and a misogynist government. To give you some examples, Pedro, 70 to 80% of Afghan women are forcibly married, and a majority of them are married as children. This occurs in government-controlled areas. Mm-hmm. In Afghanistan, 80% of suicides in Afghanistan are done by women, which, if anyone knows anything about suicide statistics, that completely flips on its head how it is in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, predominantly men commit suicide. Women commit suicide at a much lower rate than, than men. But in Afghanistan, because conditions are so bad for women, again, in government-controlled areas, they are killing themselves, and they are doing it primarily by lighting themselves on fire. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's other things. The Afghan government, under Hamid Karzai, put into law the ability of men to rape their wives. It's legal if you're an Afghan man to rape your wife. The majority of women who are in prison in Afghanistan, again, under government-controlled prison, are there because of moral crimes. I mean, so, of course, we know, because you brought him up earlier, John Sopko, who is the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, who is one of the few honest persons in the last 20 years in the United States regarding these wars, and he has done an incredible job in terms of trying to shed some light on the, the, the lies and the crimes and the fraud and the waste and the corruption of these wars. But the notion that the United States is somehow supporting a progressive nation where women are living free and have the same rights as men and are not subject to brutality and uh, misogynistic culture, just not supported by the reality of the country. I know men and women who deploy with the U.S. military to Afghanistan, who in their nine months, 12 months, 13 months, however long they were in Afghanistan, never saw a woman. And those are in areas, again, that are controlled by the U.S. and by the Afghan government. So there just has not been, as you said, Pedro, it's a myth. What I'm trying to get back to, though, too, is the crocodile tears that we care about women in Afghanistan. That every I was just watching TV today. 
for an hour, flip between CNN, MSNBC, and both of these panels, they were talking about how all of these hard-fought victories for women of Afghanistan was now at risk. So that's for the American public. You know, we're lied to. We started the show off talking about how we've been lied to about Afghanistan and Iraq and all of that. Well, we're lied to about these issues of women's rights in Afghanistan in order to placate the American public into thinking, you know, we're doing all this good when, in fact, we've done all this bad. On the issue, and I want to just remind people, we're speaking with the distinguished journalist, Matthew Ho. He's been writing a lot of articles over the years. He's written in periodicals such as the Atlantic Journal-Constitution and Counterpunch and CNN and Defense News, The Guardian, and you know just a bunch of fairly mainstream as well as progressive websites. He's also an associate member of the Veterans Intelligence Professionals, and that includes Ray McGovern, who's a friend of the show, and a number of other folks. But let's get back to this issue of suicide, because Mm -hmm. there's a study, and this is from the high suicide rates among United States service members and veterans of the post-9-11 war. So this is not just Afghanistan, but it's, of course, uh, Iraq as well. And this is from Cost of War Group that we alluded to earlier. But the study found that at least four times as many active-duty personnel and war veterans of post-9-11 conflicts have died of suicide than in combat. An estimated 30,177 have died by suicide as compared with 7,057 killed in post-9-11 war operations. The report notes that the increasing rates of suicide for both veterans and active duty personnel are outpacing those of the general population. And apparently that's an alarming shift as suicide rates among service members have historically been lower than suicide rates among the general population population. But with that being said, when we think of the casualties of war, they never include suicide numbers. And and I guess you can see why. Can you speak a little bit about these disturbing numbers and the fact that we don't get our service people the help they need? I think what's most important, the best thing we could do to support our troops is to end these terrible wars that they pay their whole lives with And companies and corporations make all this money, and then all these fake news pundits claim we're making all this progress for women's rights. It's just an insane informational world we live in. I know you're very close to the issues of servicemen and and suicide issues. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the, the significance and the breadth of this problem? Yeah, and you know, and the Cost of War Project at Bryan University does such great work. Unfortunately, they were pre- they were kind of sloppy in the way they phrased this explanation of thirty thousand dead. We'll get to the actual number that correlate to Iraq and Afghan vets, but that thirty thousand number is for all men and women who have served in the military from two thousand and one up until today. So whether or not you went to Iraq or not, that number it represents the totality of suicides. So whether when you went to Iraq or Afghanistan, the totality of suicides for that entire demographic. So I, I see this being reported kind of inaccurate, as well as to the point about the rate of suicide for the first time overtaking civilian rate is also not explained properly by the Cost of War Project. What they're referring to with that, active duty, not veterans. Veterans have always had much higher levels of suicide. Than the, than the civilian population. What we've seen, though, is active duty in the last 12 or 13 years have a rate that is higher than the civilian population. But for veterans, those who've left the military, we have always seen a higher rate of suicide in veterans than among civilians. 
and among war veterans, it is even much higher. And that's where you start to, to then look at this. Okay, that 30,000 number, of course you're going to have thousands of suicides. Since 9-11, I think there have been about 7 million people in uniform. So, of course, you're going to have suicides. You're recruiting from the general population. But what you need to look at is how many of those suicides are among people who went to Iraq and Afghanistan. And when you look at those numbers, it is terrifying, the rates. Let me just clarify. The number they they quoted was 30,177 have died by suicide compared to 7,057 killed in post-9-11 war operations. So they are talking about any post-9-11 war operation. Pedro, that includes, that 30,000 number includes people who never went anywhere, you know, who never did, who who went to basic training and then uh, spent their entire time at, at Fort Bliss or whatnot. So you're saying they're not they're not in harm's way. Yeah, I mean that that's just that's just that thirty thousand number is for everybody who put on the uniform over the last twenty years, whether they went to war or not, whether they deployed anywhere, whether they went to recruit training and then had an office job in San Diego for four years. Okay. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the numbers, when you actually pull out the data, though, and look into the numbers, and I'm not sure why the Cost of War Project didn't do this because the information is there, you see that when you look at men and women who deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and does that does not get into the detail of whether or not they actually saw combat, about half of those who went to Iraq and Afghanistan experienced combat. But of that number of, of men and women who went to the Iraq and Afghan wars, which is about 2.7 million, when you start to look at the rates of suicide, you see that the rate of suicide for those who went to these wars is incredibly high. For the youngest veterans, those in their 20s, depending upon their age, their sex, and which branch of service they were in, we see rates of suicide for those young men and women six to 14 times higher than what we see in the civilian population mm-hmm. for men and women the same age and same sex. How, how does that compare to, say, like World War II veterans? It's believed to be about the same. Mm-hmm. It's believed to be about the same. Uh, this is a, a very common misconception. I'm glad we're talking about this, that somehow these wars, the mental health, the invisible wounds of these wars are somehow different than previous wars. There is one exception to that. That caveat is traumatic brain injury Mm -hmm. because we have men and women who are surviving explosive blasts because of our body armor and our vehicle armor that they would have been killed in previous wars. And most of us who are over there who saw combat have an experience like that. Some of us have multiple experiences like that. I had Marines in my command who were blown up, that were hit by roadside bombs more than 10 times in one deployment. So that, that's the one exception. But for the most part, in terms of you're talking about mental health, substance abuse disorder, uh, other issues, it is believed that it has always been a constant that when, when men and now women come home from war who've been engaged in combat, that does something to them, not just PTSD, but also has what's called moral injury which is you have done something to betray your moral, religious, spiritual values. So this notion that somehow that these wars like World War II, there were not these consequences, is also completely undermined by the data we do have available. Mm -hmm. So what we do know is that of the 7 million people, so about 15 million people in uniform in World War II from the United States, about 7 million of those saw combat, whether they were in the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, or, or the Army Air Corps, which later became the Air Force. One in seven of them 
were discharged with a psychiatric diagnosis, one in seven. Mm -hmm. When you look at the Army and the Marine Corps, the men who saw the ground combat, right, face-to-face with the enemy, that rate of medical discharge due to psychiatric reasons goes from 25 to 37 percent, nearly 40 percent of all discharges. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about millions of men, and also women, because women were involved in World War II as well, coming home from those wars with a psychiatric diagnosis. And just to put like kind of the, the yeah. cherry on the top of that, right? This is before the American Psychiatric Association and the American Medical Association don't recognize PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as a medical diagnosis until 1980. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, that, that's what you're talking, you're talking about, again, you know, in terms of ground combat troops, one in four discharges being of a psychiatric di- diagnosis, and overall, one in seven, including Navy and Air Force, being discharged with a psychiatric diagnosis during a time when such things were unheard of in civilian society. I mean, the whole the, we think we have uh, issues with stigma and not talking about mental health now, but certainly 75 years ago it was completely different. Mm-hmm. And just to understand how different it was, the United States government actually censored any discussion of it after the war. Mm -hmm. Various films were made about it, some documentaries, as well as research studies that were censored by the U.S. government in the years after World War II that were specifically looking at the mental health consequences of World War II. What they're experiencing today, these generation of veterans, is the same that those in World War II. And to make it even more horrifying, is that World War II veterans are still killing themselves at rates much higher than their civilian peers. So in 2010, a study done in California found that World War II veterans were killing themselves at a rate four times higher than that of their civilian peers. Again, primarily men, in their 80s and 90s, putting guns in their mouths and killing themselves because what had happened in the 1940s at a rate four times greater than... Uh, men their same age who hadn't been in the war. So it doesn't go away over time is it, something I think that people really need to understand as well. I think what's even more important than that is the out of sight, out of mind, that you have completely yeah. neglected the costs of war, uh, that, that it's completely kept from the American public. We saw in post-Vietnam that they wouldn't even show any coffins coming back from Iraq, all of that stuff. It's all in order to continue war, but not let the American public know what war is really about. And it makes a lot of sense to me that if you witness some of these things that go on in war, you're a changed person forever. Well, it's not, you know, Pedro, it's not about witnessing it. It's about doing it. Right, right. There's, there's a, that's the difference that defines the trauma that war veterans experience as opposed to the trauma that most civilians experience, mm-hmm. is that as a war veteran, you are the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And it's called PITS, perpetration-induced traumatic stress. Wow. And it is. I mean, this is a real thing. And this is why we need the VA, because you have people who are dealing with these issues because they are perpetrators. Most people experience trauma as something that is done to them, a car accident, an abusive situation, right, uh, an assault, whatever. Being a perpetrator, that makes it different for veterans. The one thing I do also want to bring up, because in terms of the hidden cost of war, Pedro, is the contractors. One of the things about the, that the cost of war project at Brown University has shown is that an equivalent amount of contractors were killed as soldiers in these wars. Mm-hmm. So 
you look at the number, 7,000 service members killed in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, about 7,000 contractors were killed over there as well, doing jobs that in any other previous war would have been done by a soldier, mm-hmm. right? Would have been done by someone in uniform. But these jobs, you know, to get back to the racket of it all, right. have been contracted out to private companies. So they're the ones driving the supply trucks and doing other things. Uh, and those people get hit by roadside bombs. So you have... This- well, you have the CEOs and the higher-ups sitting here in their cushy little offices while these other guys that are getting in harm's way are getting paid, you know, probably pretty well, but not anywhere commiserate with, you know, with the risks that they're taking. Meanwhile, these CEOs and higher-ups of this elite class, as Smedley Butler indicated, are profiteering at a rate that may be dozens of times higher than the standard corporate profiteering rate, pilfering U.S. taxpayers' money along the way as a cost of war. So, yeah, it's, it's part of that racket, like you're saying. Let me ask yeah. you another, because I just want to stay with this theme a little bit. That guy, there's a guy, Steve Warren, and he's a longtime Pentagon spokesman. And he said one of the guiding principles is to keep the American people on our side at all costs. Those were his words in a, a New Yorker article to Megan Stack, a, a near press blackout. And, and she goes on to talk about how the press has been kept out of these wars increasingly, like we were just alluding to, that there's not any coverage of it of any significant extent, which helps to allow the misleading types of, of lying to the American public and nobody being held accountable to it or even realizing it. At the Washington Post deal back in 2019, for three years, they were trying to get this information. And by not getting it, the lies just kept on coming and coming and coming at incredible speed. That's the way this thing seems to work. Two more quotes from the Afghan Papers, Washington Post 2019 article. They both reflect the primary motive of government officials when it comes to war in deceiving the American public, in betraying our trust. Here's the first. Quote, a person identified as a senior National Security Council official said there was constant pressure from the Obama White House and Pentagon to provide figures to show the troop surge of 2009 to 2011 was working, despite hard evidence to the contrary. And here's a second, quote, unlike the Pentagon Papers, none of the lessons learned documents were originally classified as a government secret. Once the Washington Post pushed to make them public, however, other federal agencies intervened and classified some material after the fact. End quote. In other words, in order to protect the lies, not national security, after the fact, documents were classified. Trust our government without verifying their claims first at your own risk. The whole issue about the American public being kept from the real costs of war. Especially in those nations that we violate with the violence of our foreign policy. Yeah, you know, with, with the costs of war and how they're hidden, Pedro, that, that's, you know, that's so important because, as we were saying before about the contractor deaths, well, if there's an equivalent number of contractors killed in these wars, and in previous wars they would have been wearing a uniform, but now it's, they're, they're contracted out to private companies so those companies could make money, well, rather than 7,000 people being killed in these wars, there's 14,000 people, ki- 14, people killed in these wars. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the suicide numbers, and from what we can, can tell from the data, Approximately between ten and twelve thousand Iraq and Afghan war veterans have killed themselves since coming home from the war. I mean, you're now talking about well, you know, the actual number of people killed in these wars is about twenty-five thousand. 
But, you know, you, then you look at the, the another thing, too, about the cost, the traumatic brain injury, which I brought up briefly, yeah. which is and occurring uh, about 20% of Iraq and Afghan veterans have traumatic brain injury. And the IED uh, injuries that, that are just horrific. Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically what is happening is in these wars, we are surviving things that in previous wars we would not have survived. I mean, give you an example. I got hit. One time I got hit in the chest with a piece of shrapnel. We wore these very heavy body armor. It was effective, and that piece of shrapnel just bounced off my chest. Wow. In any previous war, it would have gone into my chest, and I would have been dead. Right. And I can tell you that pretty much all of us who have been in combat in Iraq or Afghanistan have a story like that. So the violence of these wars is best, I think, understood by the number of traumatic brain injuries which we have in veterans from these wars, which, again, is about 20% of those who have been in the war. And if you do the math, right, and you've got 2.7 million of us who have been in the wars, 20% of that is what? Over half a million veterans from these wars have traumatic brain injury. Matt, over over how, half a million. How many are not receiving the treatment they need? Kind of an iceberg type of thing, too, or not? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I mean, one of the problems, and I think anyone who is out there listening, who is familiar with any type of, of issue like this, mental and emotional health or invisible wounds or, or, or injuries, or uh, is, is that it relies on self-reporting. You know, if you right. get your arm blown off, kind of hard to hide that, right? right? And it's right. also more societally acceptable to go for help if you, you, know, you get a purple heart for that. You know, I mean, most of us who have traumatic brain injury, myself included, don't, you know, you don't receive a purple heart from that. So there's no pride in it. There's no society doesn't say, you know, good on you for making a sacrifice. Right. And it is, and it's also, too, the onset for these traumatic brain injuries. Majority of them, there's a latency to. So in my case, with my traumatic brain injury, the onset didn't occur until about seven years after the last time I had exposure to an explosive blast. So seven years after the last time I saw anything blow up, all of a sudden these things start happening, right? I'm having emotional issues. I'm having cognitive issues. I'm getting debilitating migraines and incredible fatigue. You know, my life is I basically cease being able to be functional, right, because of, of this traumatic brain injury. And who is there to explain this to me? Who's there to help me with it? You know, unless you have an awareness about it already or, or you have people in your life who are looking out for these kinds of things, it's very easy to spend a good amount of time struggling with a traumatic brain injury post-war so, when you don't know what's uh, going on. Doubting yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I, it is. It very much is an iceberg-like scenario. Again, you put all that together, you know, you understand how violent these wars have been, but most people, I don't think, understand that, you know, uh, and, and what that translates into then, though, is the government understands that. Mm -hmm. And the government understands that, you know, that whether they be Democrat or Republican, but it's really talking about the Pentagon here, understands that the best way to keep these wars going is to keep the costs hidden. That's and right. so what we've seen now, right, in, right. in the Muslim world wars mm -hmm. and, and all the wars that we're involved with from uh, that the United States has started, sustained, is involved with, from west coast of Africa all the way to Pakistan. In all those wars now, to include Afghanistan, those wars are now conducted by CIA forces, special operations forces, or by drones, mm -hmm. all of which are classified, you know, considered covert activities or covert operations, which are legally secret operations by U.S. law. 
Cam- so it's yeah, not even yeah. the question of, right? When, like, say when Kissinger or Nixon and Kissinger bombed Cambodia and they lied about it. Well, now, because it's all being done by CIA special operations or drones, they don't even have to lie about it. They are actually legally bound not to talk about these operations. Yeah. So is hide the costs, keep casualties to, to a bare minimum so that the American public doesn't get upset, and you can do whatever you want. And then, so that's what you're seeing throughout the Muslim world, again, from the west coast of Africa all the way to Pakistan, these wars being raged by covert U.S. forces, and, and then done also with contractors, and utilizing proxy forces that most of the time are forces that are that split a society right well, so go right. back to what we were talking so, about early on about afghanistan and you know kind of splitting the country along various different demographic groups that is the u.s strategy in many of these countries to do a divide and conquer type strategy to pit one ethnic group against another pit one religion against another right. pit one clan against another it's the american way of war We'll need to have to, to leave it there, but it's striking what you sa- what you're saying is that basically it's impossible to have accountability for what we do around the world because it's intentionally kept secret and it's been it's been codified to be legal to keep it from the American public. So that's the great challenge. We've had the great honor and privilege of visiting with senior fellow with the Center for International Policy since 2010. That would be Matthew Ho and and a veteran and. Thank you for your service, particularly since you left the service, and equally why you were in the service, and to everyone that's been touched by these wars that the American public refuses to demand knowledge and, and fundamental understandings of, as, as you shared tonight. So, Matt, thank you so much for your time and your efforts. If people want to follow any of your writing, is, do you have a, a website? I have a website, it's MatthewHo.com, uh, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-H-O-H. Uh, I also write most of the time for Counterpunch. Occasionally, CNN or Newsweek or someone like that will pick me up. I'm also a member of the Eisenhower Media Network, and I'm a member of the Center for International Policies. Very compelling, man. Matt, thank you so much for your time and your efforts. Okay, we'll see everybody next week. Stay tuned for some overnight music, but you'll have to switch on over to koop.org. But first, as we do at the end of every Bringing Light into Darkness show, we take you out with Land of Naivety.